Well, once again, good morning and Merry Christmas. Can't believe Christmas Eve is already here. It felt like it was uh, never going to get here, and then here we are. Um, so, um, Angel Gabriel, and Angel really just means messenger, appears to Mary and says something kind of, kind of remarkable. Because he says, uh, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Um, that's, that's, that's a bold starter. And Mary, I think, very appropriately freaks out. The text says she was greatly troubled. I think that is the appropriate response to an angel. And in fact, if you really just have nothing better to do over the next couple of days... Go searching through the Bible to find the different times when angels appear to people. You will find that it's pretty common that the angel first has to establish, don't freak out. Because what few descriptions of angels that we have, they range somewhere between terrifying to horrifying. Angels are powerful, they are strange, and we know almost nothing about them. So, Mary freaks out, and Gabriel, I guess, has to kind of talk her down. You know, don't be afraid, don't be troubled. And then the entire course of Mary's life changes in an instant. Um, up to this point, it was not really understood or known that uh, the Messiah the one who is really the culmination of the hope of Israel, sort of the, the climactic moment that began way back when, when God calls Abraham, or Abram really, and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Nobody really anticipated that this Messiah would be born miraculously. Now there is that passage in Isaiah, behold, the virgin will conceive and she will have a son and, and so on and so forth. But as best we can tell, no, none of the ra ancient rabbis or sages, none of the intertestamental literature and all of these random uh, important writings that nobody reads anymore really suggest that anybody knew, understood that to be about the Messiah. It wasn't until after Jesus was raised from the dead and the churches uh, had, had been founded that the writers of the New Testament look back and go, oh, there's something else going on here. It was in front of us the whole time. And I bring that up to point out the, the fact that Mary has no context for what the angel Gabriel is about to tell her. And so when he tells her, hey, you're going to bear a son, and he's going to be, to paraphrase, a really big deal, the biggest deal, in fact, she then says, how? <laughs> uh, I mean, she's engaged, um, but she, she, she's not married yet. She doesn't live with her husband. And, and that, that culture has, has very strict rules around that. Like, there's all kinds of questions that would come to her mind. Very appropriate questions. 
And if Mary didn't really, if, well, if nobody saw the, that coming, that the Messiah would be born miraculously of a, of a virgin, then, um, then I, I don't know that we could really explain just how shocking this would be. Now, this also renders Mary extremely vulnerable. Pregnancy outside of the bonds of marriage in the first, in first century Judea and Galilee was a very, very serious deal. And it actually put, uh, put the woman in a fair amount of danger, uh, legally um, and, and just uh, in danger of potential violence. And we would look at that and say, that's horrific. And I, I think it is horrific, but that's just how it was back then. So God is not only delivering through this angel um, a message to Mary that God is about to do something that truly nobody sees coming, but it's also going to put her at incredible risk. In fact, she stands to lose everything. And she almost does. In uh, the book of Matthew, uh, who, uh, write, who is the other writer who talks about the events leading up to Jesus' birth, um, when Joseph, kind of the fiancé for all intents and purposes of Mary, finds out that she's pregnant, he actually is going to break off the marriage. Um, and and to, let's be honest, that's the appropriate course of action. Because she's pregnant, he knows it isn't his, so... Well, there's only one way to go from there. Um, except we are told this, this kind of small detail that Joseph chooses not to expose her publicly as somebody who essentially cheated on him. And he foregoes certain legal rights and legal claims that he has in that culture. In fact, he's willing to take that financial hit, there was kind of a bride price and there's some other legal things that were floating around, because he knows that if he exposes her and claims what is his right, it's going to put her in immense danger and effectively ruin her life. So he establishes the boundary of, nope, okay, we're done here. But he is honorable enough to protect her. Now, I would argue that's exactly who you want to raise Jesus. So back to Mary. Uh, I, I would imagine that all of that is floating through her head. How is she going to tell Joseph? How is she going to explain this to her family? Because you, you can't just say, hey, I'm pregnant, but it's God's child. Uh, I think that would go over about as well as it would today. Which is, it wouldn't. But then Mary responds with, and I will paraphrase, I trust God, let's do this. In other words, she's willing to take that risk. She has enough faith to trust that this terrifying man-like being standing in front of her is from God and God is about to do something amazing. And so we see her integrity, her courage, her trust, her faith, all in just a, a very quick interaction. And just like Joseph, I would argue that that's exactly who you want raising Jesus. 
Now, there's kind of a theological principle um, in, in kind of its, its most literal sense, theology being like how you talk about God, that when we, when we talk about God like capital G God, God, uh, we are by definition referring to that which cannot be defined. God, capital G God, exists outside of time and space because God created time and space. That God, we, we say, is all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, all-present. All, all of these things, all of these big fancy theological terms, which is really just a way to say that God exists outside of definition. And the only way that we can really know God is if God chooses to reveal God's self to us. When we talk about God in that sense, it requires a tremendous amount of humility and just the recognition that we can't know much. One of the things we can say is that God, capital G, God, does not need. It would, it would be weird at best, but it really just doesn't make sense, that the God who exists outside of time and space, whatever that means, would need something for many of us. Because God is not just like a superhuman, like a superhero. God is something entirely other. And if that God were to need something, it would create all kinds of problems. So in effect, God does not need Mary to sign on on this incredibly weird unforeseen rescue operation. God, God sets the rules. If he wanted to create his son and poof, there he is, that's totally within the realm of possibility because God is the one that defines possibility. God does not need Mary. But the world does. And in this weird moment, this, this, this beginning of the end of this climactic plan that God has been uh, piecing together for a very, very long time, the rest of the world, even though they had no idea, and the Apostle Paul would eventually say even creation itself is waiting, for her to sign on and take the next steps in what will become the rescue of the world itself. God did not need her to do that. But we did. It's a very tall order for a young woman who's 13 plus or minus a year. Again, I would argue that this is exactly who you want raising Jesus. Now, this idea of need is tricky. Because whatever we say about God needing things, or not, as the case is, we as human beings exist in a constant state of need. 
we need things just to live. I need air. I need oxygen. I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need shelter. I need friends. I need family, even when they drive me crazy. And this is Christmas, so that's always, you know, extra heightened. Um, I need meaningful work. I need purpose. I need a sense of purpose in my life. I need to see and, and feel and experience the sun. I need snacks. And if I don't get snacks, I get very sad. So you and I are in a constant state of need. And this arises, uh, or this, this, this brings out some of the best and the worst that human beings have to offer each other and ourselves. Because we exist in a constant state of need. There are those of us who need to be needed. Those of us who need to help meet the needs of others. Because we get a sense of, of worth out of this. And if you find yourself sort of gravitating towards, uh, say, professions or roles that are helping in some way, you probably fall into this category. Things like doctors, nurses, really any kind of medical care, um, those who serve others, if you work in like nonprofits, <clears throat> clergy, <clears throat> um, <coughs> excuse me, you know, the, just the allergies. <laughs> um, and this is not a bad thing, but it can be. And I think it's important to talk about because uh, Christmas is usually a time that we spend with our families. It's an old joke, I tell it every year because it helps normalize what some people tend to experience. That The shortest day of the year is December 21st. Uh, that's what, the day that has the fewest uh, hours of daylight. Uh, the longest day is four days later when you have to spend Christmas with your family. And that's funny because there's some truth to that. And, and, and the idea of need will tend to get amplified when we spend time with those with whom we have a very deep history. If we are the type who need to be needed, like to be wanted, then it's going to get a little worse. Or if we are the other type, and realistically, we probably all have some combination of these. Where it's not that I need to be needed. In fact, I, I specifically will, will work my sense of identity and the way I interact with people to be very much the opposite. I don't need anybody. And in fact, I'm going to get upset if you try to help me. If you insult me by offering me something that I'm, you think I need. These are the hyper-individualistic types. Um, the types that, that um, on the one hand, might maybe leaders, maybe like to be in charge, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, because we need people to take charge. But when done at the expense of others, then we have a problem. And so with these two tendencies, and realistically, we 
again, both have these kinds of tendencies. What, what we are engaging in is just this to and fro, this push and pull that is human existence. We, whether we want to admit it or not, live in a constant state of need and in this constant state of, of wanting to not need. And caught somewhere in the middle of that is the the. the frailty of the human experience. The fact that this push and pull, this desire to be in control and in charge, or this desire to uh, be needed and caught in the middle is just this reality that we all, in fact, need. Well, it often speaks to just the darkest parts of our heart. The Bible will call this our tendency to be sinful or our sinful nature. We have this ability to take anything good and make it so extreme that it's destructive to ourselves and those around us. So whichever role you find yourself in or whichever story you tell about yourself, whether if you are the one who likes to be the one who keeps it all together and doesn't rock the boat, or you're the one who likes to take charge and, and, and help direct people, both of those can be good, but they will also likely be the ways that we destroy ourselves and those around us. question. Can you think of anything more needy than a newborn child? Not really. When we are born, uh, that, that is our most vulnerable. We are so vulnerable, we can't even ask for help. We are so needy that literally we can do nothing. Period. We have no control over anything. And for quite some time, we exist in a profound, helpless state of need. The God, capital G, God, creator of time and space and therefore existing outside of it, who by definition needs nothing, Now born of a woman, and in a very hard to understand and explain way, his son, divinity wrapped in flesh, born of a woman, the God who has no need, is now the most vulnerable. Born into a world of incredible vulnerability, will spend his entire life Feeling the push and the pull of the neediness and the desire to control. He will take on the human experience, the frailty of human life in all that it has to offer. The great um, New Testament scholar Tom Wright once said, Imagine the vulnerability of Jesus. He could have been run over by a camel at any time. It's funny, but it's true. And as part of his vocation, this taking on the need and the control and, and all of the 
complicated swirlings of the human experience, he will take that to its most extreme. And he will take on death. And yet again, because nobody really saw it coming that the Messiah who was to come would be uh, God incarnate, God in flesh, born of a virgin. No, nobody sees that coming. Likewise, nobody sees coming the fact that Messiah would die and then defeat death in the resurrection. After the fact, when Christians would look back and they would suddenly see it all over the scriptures, but not yet. And so both at the beginning and the end of Jesus' life, you have the utmost shocking revelation that this child is the God who does not need. Now the most vulnerable will live his life in that vulnerability and will die as a result of our own human brokenness and sinfulness. And then we'll take that death and defeat death itself. This is the child that is born. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because 2,000 years ago, that story started. And then in a few months, we will celebrate how that story comes to its dramatic conclusion. When Jesus is risen... And our brokenness, our neediness, our tendency to control and all of the darkest parts of our heart are now renewed and restored in Him. Amen. As you are able, I invite you to rise.